This is Arthur from the Music Snobs. Before we get started, I've got a quick program note. We're joined this episode by a very special guest, and it took some time for us to align schedules, but we were fortunate enough to connect and have legendary music journalist and cultural griot, Nelson George, sit in as a guest snob for the first half of the show. In fact, we were so determined to make this episode happen that we powered through some technical difficulties and focused on our conversation. So that said, you may notice a dip in sound quality in this episode when compared to other TMS shows, but we hope that you'll agree that the end result was well worth it. So it's me, Scoop, Isaac, Jahan, and guest snob, Nelson George, and we get into a really intriguing topic and break it down like only the music snobs can. Enjoy. Welcome to the B-Side, the Music Snobs. This is the Music Snobs Podcast. My name is Arthur, your lead voice, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Scoop, Isaac, and Jahan. And... A guest snob, a guest snob for the ages. Uh, we have, and I mean, really, his. I was trying to construct a bio, and the bio would really take as long as as the show itself. Um, we have culture critic, griot, black music historian, documentarian, and uh, just all around man. First of all, Nelson George is with us today. Hey, thank you for having me, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and let me say, let me say, as Don Cornelius is to Soul Train, as <laughs> Cynthia Horner is to Write On Magazine, Nelson George, by his own pen, is one of the pillars in documenting and presenting the history of black music in its proper context and form. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Everything you can do, Wikipedia, anything remotely related to black music, it was either done by or done on the on the foundation of Nelson George. All right. Let's get to it. You just you, <laughs> there are your flowers. <laughs> and we'll get to today's topic. <laughs> can music live without live music? The pandemic, the international pandemic that we are all being affected by has completely shut down live music as well as theaters and a good amount of public gatherings. Um, historically, live music has always been the way that musicians have been able to get their exposure before they have a recording contract, um, be able to support themselves um, outside of their recording contract, which is usually just a glorified advance loan from, from record companies. Um, but now in the age of YouTube and Instagram and even TikTok, the context of live music has changed where now we watch concerts as well as attend them, where maybe we go to festivals or, 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 or some kinds of, of, of large gatherings to hear live music. And it's more of a social experience than it is uh, a musical one and engagement with the artist. Um, so we ask this question, can music live without live music? Um, asking the panelists, do you feel that, well, first of all, are you more likely now to watch live performances via YouTube than in person? Because like for me, I don't particularly like large crowds anymore. 
And unless it's somebody very, very, very specific, you know, I would think twice about going to a stadium or an arena to see a, a live performance. Well, for me, I just say it's, it, it, it depends on the artist and probably an intimate setting. And then you have to find a way to see if the venue has, you know, stuff in place where you feel safe. Um, you know, if there is social distancing, you know, but... Uh, you know, if there's a certain amount of people that are going to be at the venue, and once again, it depends on the artist. I think the for me, the large mass audience, you know, the Coachella type stuff, I, I don't, th- I don't know if I can go with right now. But mm-hmm. if I wanted to go see a Rasan Patterson or Avery Sunshine at a smaller venue, I think you know, where you're sitting at a table and enjoying, you know, their music on an intimate basis, I think I could still. And we'll still try to do that. That's just me, though. I was at Lollapalooza 2017, I think. And I was there. I was as I was at there as a guest. But that being said, I was there more. It was almost like going to an amusement park where even if I didn't go on any of the rides, it was just nice to be out and around outdoors and having a nice you know, afternoon. And if I decided to ride on a roller coaster, great. But if I didn't, it wasn't like I was going to be that disappointed. Right. But going to see multiple artists jumping from stage to stage and doing all that, I, I don't know if that's going to exist anymore. At least right now, I can't see that happening anytime soon. Mm-hmm. You know, where you see seven to eight acts, you know, in, in a day, and you go for in the three different stages. There, there's too much interaction. Uh, it's, it's too unsafe right now to even think that that may ever come back. Um, you know, so once again, I, I think but, it's... But even go regardless... Go ahead, John. Even regardless of the pandemic, though, w- would you do that anyway? Like, pre-pandemic, or let's say a vaccine comes out and it c- cures everything... Would you be open to those type of shows? Do you enjoy that type of live experience? I, it, if I haven't been to it and I'd have to go to it, like I've never been to a, um, the music festival in Austin, Texas. And I keep see, hearing... South by I Southwest? Need, right, 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 right. Uh-huh. So I keep hearing that just for an experience, you need to do that. So that was kind of on the music bucket list to at least try that out once. But at this point in my age, it wouldn't be my thing. I'm, you know, I, I think it's an eye. We're going to see one or two artists. And, you know, that would be it, especially artists that you may not have seen before, you know. But if like, you know, if Stevie Wonder returns and he's doing songs in the key of life again, you know, at at whatever stadium at the Barclays. Yeah, I'll I'll try to go to that. No doubt. But the the outdoors concert situation, you know, the Coachella South by Southwest Lollapalooza thing. For me, once again, at this age, I wouldn't do it. But, you know, I got kids. We got kids. So. They're still interested in doing stuff like that. I think this is a generational uh, question, really. Good point. Um, yeah. If you look at the amount of underground parties that are happening, both uh, they're happening here in New York and happening I know in L.A., I'm sure they're happening all over the damn place. Those 20-somethings, they don't give a fuck. True. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they are ready to go out. They're ready to mingle. They're ready to be out. You can see it all over the place. So if, if Drake or Travis Scott is at a festival... That demo's going, and and, and they, cause it, you know they don't seem to care anyway. You know True. about they're already sort of feeling vulnerable. I think that demo. I think those live artists, those will be the first ones at, at larger venues. But to your earlier point, for me, if I want to go see, um, well, Anderson Pac's too big now. But I used to see Anderson Pac, you know, at clubs in L.A. or um, any of those kind of, you know, or. Um, uh, or uh, her, or someone of that, you know, that kind of like vibe. Emily King, or More intimate. Uh-huh. You know, if it's at the right venue, I would go. And I think that, but I do, I do think I, I, I'm friends with a lot of older, you know, musicians. Those guys are really worried because they know if they're a 40 plus and their audience is 40 plus, 
they're not they're <laughs> not going to you know they they're really worried about 2021 2022 i might not be able to go on the road again in any substantial way for three or four years because that demo the, the ones are most vulnerable are the least likely to want to go out again so right. that's, that's going to be hard for the veterans who have a who may have a 20 or 30 year following mm-hmm. to get there to figure out how to interact with their demo again because now at this point the live experience that is their income yes yes yeah I mean, the OJs or, you know, you fill in the blank. You saw Stevie, he's a superstar, but those those kind of like OJs or even even boys to men probably at this point, you know, any mm-hmm. act that's a, 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 what do you call it, legacy act. Right. Well, Nelson, let me it's ask It's got to be tough, tough for them. Let me ask you a question. Ahead, where, where you have acts, where you have festivals where they interject both those uh, generational artists, like let's say Essence Fest. What happens to the Essence Fest moving forward? Wow. Well, because Essence Fest is totally the black Lollapalooza. Exactly. But it's also, exactly. It, it's such an adult. I mean, every every uh, car dealership owner in the South. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all those guys who have car dealerships sort of have the local rib spot and their woman works as a teacher or as a nurse. I mean, that is such a black adult thing. I, 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 it's going to be hard because that really is the core of that of that group. They go to see Frankie Beverly every year. Right. You know what I'm saying? But you also mm-hmm. will see. But I also I'm wearing, see her I'm my Afro punk. Uh, there you go. Sure. And Afro the Afro punk thing is a completely different demo. And I go that I, you know it's not going to be happening. It's every it started here in Brooklyn every year, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. that is one of my favorite things to go for me as an older person to go and see. Okay, I I, I see five or six acts I read about or seen a video, <laughs> right. and they're blowing up on the blogs. <laughs> And I can go see them and get a little read of what they're about. And then also, you know, yeah. just in terms of the demo, every year I go to Afropunk, I learn about what color hair is in and what <laughs> color, you know, uh-huh. dashiki uh-huh. is in. So uh-huh. I, I, from, a, from a journalistic, cultural, I'm mean like a cultural point of view, I'm going to miss these shows because they were my gateway, as you said, uh, Arthur, not just to the music, but to the whole, whatever's happening in that particular Right, a cultural demo. You know what they're into it that year. You know. Let me ask. And, let me ask you, know, you guys a question, me, though. Let me, ahead, let me ask you guys ahead. a question. You even pre-pandemic, um, say in the last five years before this pandemic hit, you guys keep talking about festivals. Is it all about the festivals? Because I know here in Chicago, you can go see. You know, pre-pandemic, you can go see a live show. You know, seven nights a week. You know, mm-hmm. it, depending on where you go. So. Was mm-hmm. it is it more about festivals now or people pre-pandemic were people still going to see live music just for the music, not necessarily for the festival and the atmosphere? And like you said, the fashion and this, that and the third were people just going to listen to music because that's the something that I remember. Were. You know, that's yeah. that's not that long in the past where, you know, people just would go out and see music. No. So pre-pandemic, I mean, for you guys, was that still happening or not? That's a generational thing, too, right? Like, yeah. I think. Yeah, that is. I would imagine that the festival thing, with the exception of the Frankie Beverly's, um, with the exception of Cameo, with the exception of, I don't know, Branford Marsalis going on the road, those, you know, Playboy Jazz Festival, for example. Mm. Um, I think that most festivals are geared towards anything up from 15 or 14 to 25. Um, and, and most of the people that you see at Coachella, for example, or the Wireless Festival in the UK, in London over here, and all manner of festivals, Burning Man even, they tend to be at the younger end. I mean, Burning Man probably is 20 to 30, but but still it tends to skew towards the younger end. Whereas I think going to an individual concert locally to you, it's because you like that particular 
artist, you're sitting down or you're standing up, whatever, you're in a particular room, seeing that artist present their music to you rather than, I think Nelson put it perfectly with the Afropunk example, rather than going for the entire experience. Um, or in Coachella's case, going so you can take photos of yourself <laughs> and market them on Instagram. <laughs> oh, I gotta say, I wanna get one. Uh, Kenyon Harrow, Kenyon Harrow, the trumpet player, is a, is a friend of mine. So he's like, his summer was, I wanna be in Sardinia, then I'm doing, you know, Berlin. His mm-hmm. whole summer was laid out going for almost a year of tours. He's, not, he's in his Brooklyn, you know, his Brooklyn apartment trying to figure out how do I, how do I eat? You know, he's right. a mm-hmm. superb player. Um, but I mean that you, and you extrapolate Kenyon's dilemma I think for jazz and I, to your point Isaac I think for jazz people this is particularly uh, dangerous because there, there really is no income from your records it, it's all live right and so I think that the jazz community of all of these you know I use them as a particular target man it's going to be so hard for those uh, musicians to eat coming in going into the to winter man I think and I don't even know if they can can they make that money up again digitally you know doing live shows I don't know that they can mm. I mean I know with um, with Keon he plays with D'Angelo too right right similarly that's another demographic that's been less likely yeah. to come out etc so even whether it's performing their own stuff or whether like Chris Dave or Keon or whomever sure. you, you go on tour with even that gets impacted. You know, I recently attended uh, a festival called Rise Up Brooklyn that happened last month at the time of this recording. And it was a festival that took place on, on every, every Friday and Saturday in July. And it was, a, it was effectively a jazz festival. And it was comprised mostly of young artists. And uh, my favorite artist right now, vibraphone is Joel Ross, you know, mm-hmm. performed... Uh, you know, at this festival. And it was it was a paid festival that was set up through Crowdcast where you needed to contribute at least five dollars, but you can contribute as much as you can, you know, toward watching each one of these performances. And it was a model. I talked to Joel after, you know, he had told me that it was a model that was created uh, for, for the for the perfect standpoint of being able to compensate artists for their work to and and try to capture the the I guess the what really is the generational but now it's almost the only way that you could experience live music um, to be able to do it on a format streaming in a you know in a in a in a room socially distanced you know, a couple of cameras, you know, and a host and everyone is effectively spread out. Um, and it came off very nicely. Um, but not everyone is going to do that, both from the professional, I mean, from the performance side, also, you know, from the audience side, because the rooms that I would go to to see live music, I wasn't I wasn't going to those rooms, you know, to see um, future for example, you know, Future wouldn't do well in a room like that. I would go to see the Foreign Exchange or Corinne Bailey Ray or Little Dragon or, you know, or, you know, acts like that. Did you guys see Erica Badu's um, at home sessions? She did it brilliantly. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. She, I mean, the first one was literally at home. And I think the second one, she had a space in a building where she had constructed quite ingeniously. She'd constructed these kind of bubbles for each member of her band to to play in so it was kind of 
it was very visually socially distanced. You know,、mm. apart from just the space, it was. She really put a premium on the appearance and presentation of having people safe and separate. And she performed, I think, two or three concerts in this way. And she charged a very minimal fee, like much, much lower、mm. than you would have charged to actually see her in person. Like I think the first was a dollar, if I'm not mistaken. The second、mm. might have been five or something in that region. Interestingly, people complained about it. There were people online who were saying, "What that it should have been free?" Correct. Uh、mm-hmm. huh. Correct. And of course, you know, Erica very reasonably was saying, "Well, hang on, I'm trying to feed my band members here. This is, this is how I make money. This is, you know, insane. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do your job for free just because you're working remotely." Absolutely. Well, I think you know, going to what Isaac was saying, I think、uh, Isaac, there's there. Pre-pandemic, I think there are things that are set up now that's just a whole different experience、uh, that, that I've done over the last maybe ten years, and it, and it's it's almost like a combined thing where the live thing is not just the music anymore. You have venues that give you a dinner experience, a wine experience. You know, you get a table, you sit at the table, you have a little food, you have a little drink or whatever, and you enjoy the artist that way. That's what we were doing pre-pandemic. What's interesting though is that like. Um, Little Yachty just came here, and now the new thing they're doing is drive-ins.、Mm-hmm. Like they're performing concerts,、mm-hmm. but、yeah. you go in your cars、yeah. and you're paying、yeah. a flat fee for each car. So if you get six people、yeah. in your car, you're paying three hundred dollars, but six people can、mm-hmm. enjoy it, and you can bring your own food, bring your drink. They do the、yeah. check thing, but it's a whole different experience where you're getting a live performance. You can sit on top of your car, stand outside your car, but you're with your own group. And the 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 concert is actually still happening right in front of、uh-huh. you on stage. That seems to be the new way they're thinking about doing things, as opposed to doing festivals. So there is a way for artists now, post pandemic, to make things happen, and they're trying out different ways of making it happen. But I guess what's what's interesting to me though is that you know obviously the pandemic has worsened this entire situation. But from hearing you guys talk, before the pandemic. You had to almost invent, you know. It was like you basically had to re kind of configure the live experience to make sure people would come. So it wasn't just like you can get on stage. Hey, we're gonna be at this club tonight. We're gonna be at this venue tonight. You had to create a festival, get multiple acts. You had to do dinners, like you said, or a venue. You、yeah. had to create, you know. And I know a lot of these festivals, or venue, some of these other ones. I know there's, they have long histories. You know, I know the the one, and I can't remember scoop the one in Union Park, which has gotten really popular over the last.、Um, Several years、yeah. that doesn't have as long of a history, but you know some of these festivals and events they have longer histories. But it does feel like there was a you know a concerted effort to say, okay, people aren't coming just to go hear the music. We got to create it. You know, we got to make、an、this、experience. into an event,、yes. an experience, so、yes. on and so forth. They branded it. Well, again, I would, I would also think this again. This is, this is generational and genre specific because、mm. jazz people go see jazz, and they're not expecting and they're expecting to get a to sit down and have a cavassier and. Here, whoever in a small venue. Uh, uh, if you go, like I've been, I've been spent a lot of time in LA、um, the last couple of years. There's a whole world of like you know East LA of of, of Mexican、sure. venues、yes. where people are going and dancing, and so I, I do think that we we should look at this through the prism of pop music alone. All these other styles have their own you know constituencies and how they interact with the music、uh, is different. So I, I I do think that the The big business of it is, you know, obviously in trouble. But I think these communities where people are connected to the music as a as a listening experience and cultural, whether it's a reggae community or the or people listening to、uh, Cuban music in Miami, they're going to go back to their they're going to go back to their spots 
when they're when they can. I think you know another thing we should talk about is insurance, because I'm wondering how I know it's an issue with the film business. I'm wondering mm-hmm. you know how much insurance you have to get as a as a venue now going mm-hmm. forward mm-hmm. in right. case someone gets coronavirus at your spot. That's going to be a, I think that's going to be a challenge. What I really wonder is if the club in the theater is going to be viable again, or is it going to be the arena? Given an arena is better fitted, better suited to do, you know, six chairs apart or some model like that. So hold up, though. I know, right? I don't we, know. We, we, we talk <laughs> about we we can talk about this forever because it's like there's just so much uncertainty. But mm-hmm. let me ask. Let me throw out another question then. And I know that there's an economic component to this that we are going to talk about. Nelson already touched on it, and I think it's important for us to get into that as well. But why is live music important? You know, outside of the economics, which we'll get to, but why is live music important? Well, it's important because you see the person or the group that you have attached part of yourself to through their music. I can see them on YouTube, though. Oh, but it's not the same. It's not the same. I mean, listen. I'm, I'm devil's advocate. I'm just devil's advocate. It's too. I'm watching the NBA. Yeah. I'm watching the NBA playoffs, right? And there, there right. are moments in the games where, like yesterday, when the Lakers were playing Portland. Right. If that game was in Portland, when Portland made, when Carmelo hit those three jumpers in a row, the place would have been bananas. Yes. Right. Yes. People would have been yelling, and the whole the team would have been energized in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Right. So that. Having that, lacking that relationship with the audience, which is the third part of this dynamic in sports, it takes something away from the experience. I feel the same thing about music. When you're, when you're watching this stuff on YouTube, I don't know, when you're in a room and, and, and the vibe is right and people are, you are part of the music because the musicians are feeding off of you right, to a great degree. Right, so it's, right. not a, it's not like a, when we're doing this online thing, it just feels like a flat experience. Whereas the, the uh, live experience is a dynamic interaction between performer and audience um, that this can't be, rep- I don't think it can be replicated digitally. I think that, you know, to answer the question, I really do think that it's still necessary because as human beings, we still seek different experiences and live music is still a different experience and it makes us feel differently, even though it can be the same music. You all know, and there's nothing we can do outside is because of the way we're built as human beings, that hearing something as it is in front of you is different than hearing it through another source. And somehow it could be the exact same thing, but you feel it differently. And I think as human beings, Mm -hmm. we're still going to seek that feeling out. So when it comes to live music, yes, it's still going to be necessary because at some point, somebody's going to want to feel the music directly as opposed to another source because they want that experience. They, they just want to know what that feels like. There's still a different energy seeing music and musicians performed live. It's, there's still a different... A lot of times the music is sped up, but even if the songs are different, and there's, you know, the fact that you can... you walking into an event that Nelson was talking about where the unexpected is expected where you never know what in that moment what chord the artist is going to do what what vocally they're going to do different because just in that moment you get something live that you may not get in any other situation because every live performance is different as human beings mm-hmm. and music lovers we know that so i think we're still going to seek out that live experience because there, there's something unique about us that wants that experience that is different even if it's something we already know 
And I don't, I don't think that's leaving. I think that's just human nature and how we gravitate towards things. So as, as bad as it's going to get, I still think that even with cats that are 15 years old now and listen to, like I said, little Uzi Vert or hanging on to everything that, you know, Travis Scott or Vic Mensa is saying, mm-hmm. they still, if given the opportunity, will soak up everything they can on YouTube, you know, soak up everything they can on any streaming service to memorize every word, every chord, every note. But if there's a chance to see that artist face to face, they will still do that just for that lone experience. I think that's still in everybody. I think I just think that's human nature. I think it's a tribal experience. It's a tribal experience of us together in a room mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with your with people you may not know ever right. who who all are singing the same words and you're singing along with the artist. You become part of a tribe, and you can't do that at home. Yeah, you can't. And you think well, that's me, re- me, you think that's you you guys think that that's regardless of the generation. Regardless, I do. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? Let me throw this out there then, because I feel like you know usually I'm on this show. I'm the ray of sunshine, so let me take that familiar stand. <laughs> wow. <laughs> why, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Anyway. Wow. So there's a chance though, post pandemic, whenever that will be, that. Because we've been so even, you know, regardless of generation, because we've been kept away from these things for so long, there's a chance that there may be an increase, you know, in people, you know, wanting to be, as Nelson said, tribal or to go see these acts. Mm-hmm. Because I hear you guys talking about the, the almost the music that people are familiar with. You know, they've, they've listened to this song or this album a thousand times. They want to go see it live. But I look forward to the days when, because, you know, for for unknown acts, I know back in the day, you know, record labels, one of the things they do was you send an unknown act on the road so they can develop, you know, and they, you know, they go do the small venues or whatever. I look forward to the days when people just want to go hear live music. You know what I'm saying? It's regardless of this. Oh, I, you know, this cat, I heard somebody say he's cool. I'm gonna go check him out. You know, it's, it's a $10 or $20 cover or whatever at this club that only holds, you know, 100 people. I'm gonna go check them out. So I think maybe there's a possibility that post pandemic, we do get back to something like that simply because people have been, you know, it's been taken from us. You know, the tribal experience has been taken from us. Well, I, I can say just this this summer in New York, because of the pandemic, we have all this outdoor seating now in the city. People are all up in that. They're outside. They are excited. You can the energy in the streets here. Actually, maybe not in Midtown Manhattan, but in Brooklyn and in the neighborhoods mm-hmm. where people are. You can feel that desire to connect. It's so palpable. So as soon as people can get, I feel as soon as people can get a chance to be in a venue and feel some level of safety, I think we're going to see an explosion of Mm. of actual live music and performance. The artists are going to be ready to go. The fans are going to be ready to go. And we're going to be craving that sense of community. I, you know, I even think the marches we had were some were form of that. Mm-hmm. The protest marches oh, were yeah. also a sense yeah. of yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. Without, Without, you know? Without doubt. Yeah, definitely tribalism, yeah. Let me hit the pause button because I wanted to get to something uh, personally about, about Nelson. Um, Nelson George has written a plethora of books. Um, for me, in college, I was given uh, two books, one that I read, one that I didn't, but that, that is important right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Did you steal them, but, um, You stole them, didn't you? Exactly. Uh, Where did our love go? Which was a history to me, the definitive history of Motown, and also uh, the the death of rhythm and blues, which was just a chronicle of what modern, what we know as modern day R and B is. Um, but Nelson, you have released. Well, you're also a mystery series writer yeah and your latest book 
uh, which is the fifth novel in the D Hunter mystery series, is called The Darkest Hearts. Right. Um, that is is that's a hell of a shift. No, it, <laughs> so it's, the, not, it's not because they're actually all based in the music. Mm-hmm. The the lead character D Hunter in the first book started as a bodyguard at a club in New York. And over the course of five books, he's now a talent manager in L.A. And uh, this book, the current one, The Darkest Hearts, he's managing a trap artist from Atlanta. Mm. The first chapter of the book takes place at, at um, come on, what's the strip club that, that, uh, in Atlanta, the big one? Magic City. Magic City. Magic City. Takes place at Magic City. Yeah, Magic City. Yeah. So, Hold up. Jahan was the first one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, 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 no. Can I just say, can I just say, I've never in my life been to a strip club right and everybody keeps telling me that the first one i gotta go to should be magic c i'm not i'm not gonna go i'm not gonna go isaac stop laughing <laughs> well i mean so, so i guess just to make a, sh- a, sh- a long novel short is basically the premise of the book is very simple and it, it get our man is uh, managing a trap artist little day from atlanta they're gonna offer a a deal to make the Ciroc of the south they're gonna have they're mm-hmm. gonna have the biggest marketing campaign for a southern based rapper to sell his malt liquor well, it turns out the guy who owns the company is a huge Trump supporter and <laughs> is involved in, uh, in privatizing prisons, um, as involved in all kinds of... He's basically using the money he makes off malt liquor to uh, to hold down black people in, in, in the short run and to exploit mm. our own weaknesses against us. And so they have mm. a moral choice to make at some point whether or not do we take this deal or not. And the whole book hinges on, on this, de- this decision whether or not, you know, it goes back to the thing. What, what it could, and it, it is something that when I first pitched it to my publisher, it was like, well, that's a crazy story. No one would, that would, there's no conspiracies like that. Well, cut two, right? <laughs> so we know for a fact that um, many, many aspects of the, of the Republican uh, plur- oligarchy, mm-hmm. you know, are, are you use different parts of, um, Oh, Mark, they're selling it like from Equinox on through. We're, we're, we're giving them money they're using to enslave us. And so that's, that becomes the point. So throughout the, the books, music is always a pivot point for a question about morality and a question about the role of black music in the larger culture. So they're all tied together. I just like the mysteries, though, because they're fun. I'd love to know how your that's research dope. went that's for dope. how to research trap in strip club culture that's easy he asked john (laughs) (laughs) okay we developed a special segment uh that we're calling stage versus studio where we briefly take a comparative analysis of uh, an artist's studio material and look at uh that same artist's uh live Output and make these comparisons about um, energy, translation, dynamics, all of that. We touched a little bit on hip hop, but hip hop for me is 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 a real animal when the, when it comes to translating the studio version of a song and a live version. Take an artist like Public Enemy. Public Enemy being from the golden age in hip hop, but has also you know transcended that even young people. Uh, know about Public Enemy because for the most part their their parents or older family member can talk about Public Enemy because of the impact that that group had on them. I saw, I was a diehard Public Enemy fan from 1986 
and I finally saw Public Enemy in 1990 on what I believe was the final shows that they did, at least the final shows that they did in Los Angeles. And I saw them at the Palace. Sold out concert. I don't have any bad ill or bad memory of being there other than I just remembered that because it was really my first hip hop show. And I remembered that I did have a, I was slightly disappointed because I mean, for one, at least at that show, Chuck D, he was effectively rhyming over his own track. I mean, instead of instead of Terminator X just effectively playing the song, he was literally playing the song with vocal on it. And Chuck was rhyming over that. And to me, that had a kind of a loss of quality to it because I felt that Chuck was trying to compete with his own energy. And if you know anything about Chuck D's voice, you know that that he he's like run. He he cuts through, you know, any anything that he's on ever since that every other hip hop show that I've seen. And they weren't all like that as far as the MC rhyming over their own, you know, their own vocal. There was always some something that was missing for me than when I would see, you know, a group or another artist with a band and, you know, a theater performance. But I don't know. I've never seen P.E. in an arena. Well, I mean, P.E. puts on a great show. Uh, I mean, the larger issue is, is you know, you're talking about it's really, it's really hip hop as a live music experience. Um, and because it's uh, it can have a very much live or memorex quality because uh, mm-hmm. either whether it was a DJ cutting live or uh, Serato now or, or Dats at one point. Um, because there is no uh, emotional or um, musical engagement with the audience in, in, in that way. I mean, if you have, if, I'll put it this way. When Run had, had uh, Jam Master J, Jam Master J was very good at mm-hmm. adding scratches and accents. He was almost a band himself. But most of these guys, he was, because he was part of the band, but most of the uh, rap shows over the years I've seen, uh, with exceptions here and there, don't tend to have the same dynamic quality as a live show because the music, the, there's no moment where the, the where the musicians are feeling the audience and they start playing differently off the energy of the crowd. You know, that, that moment that happens when that thing happens mm-hmm. and they start picking up and that thing happens. It doesn't really happen mm-hmm. in hip-hop largely because the music is so pre-done. I mean, you can have a great show. I've seen P.E. do great shows. Yeah. Uh uh, I've seen mm-hmm. I, one of my favorite memories of all time. Actually, is seeing Ice Cube the first time he played New York. He played the Apollo Theater, and he came out uh, with a baseball bat onto the stage. Like you know, uh, he was one of the songs from um, uh, America's that uh, second album, that solo out first solo album. Yeah, it was an incredible performance. Most yeah, it was an incredible performance. Uh-huh. But he he came out to, to prove to New York, I'm, you know, he he came with that energy. Right, and it was. Okay. New York that okay. I read. It was amazing, but I do think that there is a difference between the pro programmed beats, if you will, and the live experience for a viewer. You know, um, Pete. Though I will say, I, I mean, Chuck doesn't know. I've seen Chuck in Flav when they came out and they have the S one Ws and that shit is popping. I, I think it's a dyna- it's one of the mm-hmm. better. Like, actually, it's one of the better live shows in hip hop. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I've, I think I've been it's the to definition several, of energy. Right, that's what I said. I've been to several PE shows, and every time I leave one, it feels like I just left a, a you know, a Black Panther rally. But that's more. But and Chuck is a big, big 
proponent of the energy that he's giving you live on stage. Yes. He, that That's meaningful to him. The one uh -huh. thing I would say that's interesting about P.E. is that as much as you gain energy from their live shows and it makes you feel a certain way while you're in it and even when you leave, the one thing they can't replicate is the intricacies of what the whole bomb squad is able to do musically when you sit down and listen to them. Yeah, I agree. To me, that doesn't transfer because okay. it's, it's okay. so, their shows are so built on energy. And when they get in the studios, right. there's so many nuances with their samplings that are missed in a live show because they're so concerned about the energy. Totally agree. Right? But when totally you listen agree. to them, you still to this day can listen to Public Enemy albums and hear things that you've never heard before. Sounds that are right. layered on top of layers on top of layers and samples that you never paid attention to. That you'll never have the opportunity to even get to that in a live show. Mm -hmm. So I, I think if we're going one versus the other with P.E., I don't even know. It depends on what you're looking for because they're two different things. They're yeah, two totally yeah. different things. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Scoop just said. I think, though, with P.E., you're talking about because like the, the musical intricacy, excuse me, I definitely agree with what you just said, Scoop. But I also think that when you're just, when you're talking about the mm -hmm. other thing, the energy, when you're listening to a PE album, especially back at their peak, and you're caught up in that whole the zeitgeist of that that whole era, it's music that begs to be listened to or heard live. It just it begs you to hear. You know, you got to go hear this live. Then you go to the concert, and you're it's like when you're listening to the album, it was like an assault. And then when you go to the concert, it's like war. You know, it's like you're just you're 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 immersed in that energy. And I think to Nelson's point, it's not so much about the changes in the music It's Chuck and Flav and the, you know, the S1Ws It's the changes. And especially with Chuck, what he feeds off of the audience and what he comes out of his mouth. Uh, Scoop, you, you remember the last the last piece show I saw was with you. Right. Um, I think at House of Blues mm -hmm. um, in Chicago. And he, you know, he saw he looked out. And of course, most of the audience was white, as many of the audiences were. And he said, Elvis, you know, was a hero to y'all and pointed at the crowd. And it was just like, for me and Scoop standing uh -huh. in the back, it was like, oh, you know, we just lost it. You know, and it was like, again, it was that that energy that he was getting in, in that moment. So for, for, for P.E., I feel like that's the difference between their studio and stage. But um, I do feel like when I listened to their albums, you know, growing up, it was like, yeah, this this needs to be heard live. I need to feel this. I need to be in that that space with this music yeah yeah and it may be the energy it may be the energy that they were feeding off of you right know what I'm saying? But it was like, like just being in the zeitgeist of that moment and just the energy and they you know same with nwa and everything else they were just in the moment you know? yeah i know but you're like they, he, they don't know this is about yeah. them do they <laughs> <laughs> now even when i saw him and i saw him mm -hmm. in 1990 so i so griff was there griff was back because he'd been tired and he came back and and all of that but then there was still a way more um, concentration of white people than i thought would show up to a public enemy show I pretty much agree with Scoop, but, but I mean, only thing I would add is, did you guys know that Flavor Flav, he plays instruments, like, he can play. Oh yeah, we know yeah, that. he's a musician. Oh yeah, he's a yeah. musician, yeah, 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 yeah mm -hmm. all the time. All no, day. I haven't Scoop, I actually wrote a song with Flavor. Oh wow. Mm. I want to hear this. Oh no, uh, no, no you don't. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to hear the story though, give me the story. <laughs> but, so before Flavor was Flavor, he was, he was Rico Drayton. Right. And he used to come into the city. I, I, I don't know how I got introduced to him, but I was still writing at, at Billboard at that time. So it's late 80s, mid 80s. Mm -hmm. And he's not he he's not with PE yet, but he's trying to make it as a solo artist. And he had all these demos. And he, he my favorite thing is that he would come into the city from Long Island, try and get some meetings, and he never had car fare back to Long Island. So, so I was always giving him like $10 or whatever to get the Long Island Railroad back, back to Long Island. Um, and he was really nice. He was super, he played bass, 
guitar, keyboards. He was incredibly gifted, and he was singing. So I actually wrote a song, hmm. lyrics to a song that he actually recorded. It's somewhere in the archives of lost in the archives of, of TDK tapes. Tapes. Um, but um, so I remember him very vividly. And then suddenly, a year or two later, he's Flavor Flav. Mm. So uh, wow. he, he he really you know and the shame of almost the shame of his career is that he never got a chance to make his solo album. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's kind of deep. And and I imagine that like most people they they misperceive who he is. Yes, because he's well he's made it, but he's done it himself. But he so participated like, for he, sure, he, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Yeah, he took on. The Have persona. any of you guys heard a hip hop act that you feel sounded much better live on um, stage than they did studio? The Roots. Yeah, there you go. I did The Roots. Yeah, the I mean, roots, The Roots yep. are better live. Yep. I'll say The Roots. Mm. And I hate mm. to say this, but D'Angelo for me. Oh, D'Angelo's great live. Yeah, he's amazing oh, yeah. live. Yep. He, he'd be the one, I'd say, just out of the hip-hop genre. But definitely The Roots inside of Oh, the let genre. me ask you this. And let, me, yeah. let me ask you and Scoop something. And this is not an age thing, but I'm just going to ask y'all because y'all are the two that make... Right, yeah, it is. Go for it. Y'all may be the two that can answer this question. As a Marvin fan, I know that Marvin was a big fan of the control that he had in the studio. You know, the control over his sound in the studio, especially in his in his at the peak, you know, in the 70s. Um, but he and he hated to go on stage. But once he got on stage, they said they could they couldn't drag him off stage. Have either of you seen Marvin Gaye live? Oh, yeah. And if so, uh, how do you how do you compare that to his his studio recordings? I'll give you a great, I'll give you a story. So in 1981, no, it, whatever his comeback was, he first came back to the States. 81. Yeah. 80, 81? Somewhere in there. Yeah. I, I got a gig to interview him for a magazine for musicians. So I went out to the Bay Area. Mm. I go mm-hmm. to the, 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 the hotel. You open the door. There's a woman with a hot plate. You guys know what a hot plate is? Yeah, we know. <laughs> so, yes. So he's, this woman, <laughs> she's, she's warming up some food in the living room. Okay, they knock on the door. Marvin lets me come in. So there's two bodyguards, and there's Wide World Sports. There's a fight on. And there's Marvin Gaye sitting here. He's got on uh, a terry cloth white robe, uh, a stocking cap, you know, get that wave right, <laughs> and a facial mask. <laughs> and mm. so, and so the okay. whole interview, I'm interviewing him while he's watching the fight. So in between... <laughs> between <laughs> You know, so that goes on. So then I go to see the show that next night at a place called the Circle Stars Theater, uh, and what and what mm-hmm. you know, what is now mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, you know, and it's I, it's amazing. He does he he's everything you could want. Plus he does a couple of songs. He does a couple of, of obscure Motown songs. I, I had to look up later. Mm. He was an incredible voice. Cut to. I think maybe two months later, three months later, he plays Radio City Music Hall on the same tour. He's been on the road. He's been doing drugs. All the demons that chased him out of the country are back. And I can honestly say he was terrible at Radio City. Mm-hmm. Uh, he Ter- Terrible compared to the previous or just terrible period? Kind of terrible. His, his falsetto was really wrecked. He couldn't mm-hmm. hit any high notes. Um... He had his mid-range. He still sounded good on the mid-range. Also, he was just very erratic on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he was very unsteady. Compared to the guy I'd seen two months before who was in total command. So, I saw the good and bad of Marvin in that one tour. And 
He was dead in uh, about a year later, year and a half later. Nelson, so, Nelson, what holds more weight with you as a fan, if you can be a fan, when an artist of that ilk, d- does the great performance hold more weight or do you does the bad performance hold more weight with you? Which one do you... Oh, no, the great performance, man. Okay, I mean, all right. I, because, I mean, that, that's the Marvin you, you dreamed of seeing. Okay. You know, if you listen to that, that great live album, the one that... Um, that's the Palladium, live, live the Palladium, yeah, in London. Yeah, yeah Palladium, he did it, he... He was a magnificent singer and uh, a super sensitive artist. I think that mm-hmm. ultimately, mm-hmm. so I don't really think much about the bad performance okay. other than as, a, as kind of a spectacle okay. because it's part of the downward slope that led to his demise ultimately. Okay. But the guy who came back to America from that time he was in Belgium, that was uh, that was one of my favorite memories of, you know, because I, I think I pretty much missed him when I was younger. So I was by that time I really was able to see him, at, you know, when I was a full-time music writer, right. and to really get that experience of reviewing a Marvin Gaye show where Marvin Gaye kicks ass. Mm. That's one of the special ones that I never and just meeting Marvin on that same tour, you know. And I think that's mm. the one thing about live shows is that we somehow remember them, like we can memorize albums and all this that, and the other, but we remember as human beings live shows. Somehow they stick with us, and you know, once again, it's a human experience, but. There's something about us remembering live shows in a way that we don't remember other things, especially when it comes to music. So remember I talked about Ice Cube, his first show in New York? So I saw Anita Baker's first show in New York. Hmm. She had had the first album out, and then that second album came out, which was the bomb, Rapture. So she played Avery Fisher Hall. Rapture, yeah. And it was one of those nights where the crowd was already in love. I swear to God, I've never seen it. She got a standing ovation after her third song. She got a standing ovation after her fifth, seventh song. She had a standing ovation at the end of the night. The crowd was so in love with her. And she was she yeah. was obviously there to kick ass because she was in New York. So those moments, like, you can't, that's not going to be, you're not going to have that interaction digitally. Because being in the room that night, I've never forgotten that show. Mm-hmm. Of, like, this perfect marriage of the audience anticipation, her own, I guess, moment to, to rep, and, and how those things work together. So... That's that's why live music will mm. never die. But can that be translated on a live album? Mm. I mean, like for me, I prefer Aretha's Amazing Grace or Live at the Fillmore more than almost any other studio album that she's ever produced. I can almost say the same thing for, oh. for Bill Withers and barely can say the same thing for Earth, oh, and Fire's Gratitude, right, right, right. where the live album, you know, is, you know, is it. And I listen to a, live, a lot of live shows and sometimes I don't even go back to the remember, record. Those live, those live records, I know, Earth and Fire, those are a collection of shows. Yeah. That's not just one show. Yeah. So they picked the best performance of a tour. Mm. They weren't that hot right. every night. Right. I think it may be about, I think it may be about, and this may be the scoop's point, about the moment. You know, because it's a very personal thing when you have that moment of seeing somebody live. And it's like, like I think about Motown 25, you know what I'm saying, when Michael Jackson, you know, changed everything. And going to school the next day and talking about it, that was like a moment that we shared with everybody on the planet, basically. But when you go to a concert, it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be about everybody. It may just be about you and the person you went and you went Mm -hmm. with and the, you know, the people in the crowd. It's just a very personal thing. Like that story Nelson just told about Marvin, somebody else may have that story, but, you know, not everybody was there that night. But it's a very personal thing. I think those moments matter. I don't know if this is um, the same in the United States. But in the United Kingdom, it's increasingly hard for people, particularly young people, to get the live experience, regardless of the pandemic or anything, because 
When I was growing up, there wasn't such a thing as a secondary market for ticket sales. Mm. But now, when, when a concert ticket goes on sale now in the UK, within seconds, the tickets, all the tickets, are purchased algorithmically mm. by a secondary market site, which is mm. more often than not owned by the primary market site, Ticketmaster or Ticketweb or C-Tickets or whomever is selling it at, at the primary point of sale. And then on the secondary market site, it's all profit for the secondary market seller. And a £50 ticket is, in seconds, £150. So mm. irrespective of the tickets being more expensive anyway at the primary point of sale, had this been the case when I was growing up, I wouldn't have seen, seen anybody. <laughs> 99% of the acts that I have seen today. Mm. Um, and and that, that's, that to me is, even though I will always prefer just musically for me and my own taste, I'll, I tend to prefer studio recordings more than live recordings. I can't underestimate what live shows have done for my own musical development and what witnessing them and experiencing them has done for that. And I sort of think about all the 12 and 15 and 16 year olds who can no longer afford as I no way would have been able to back then. I think about that a lot. and It bothers me that so many people will be have been have been cut out of the live experience because of this kind of profit model that's that's come up really in the last 10 years. I would also say that, that if you look at the quality of, of live music experience, you know, if you look at the 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 downfall of music education in, in America in terms of people learning, being taught basics of mm, music. Absolutely, absolutely. You tie into that with the, with, the, with the lack of accessibility of live performance. And you begin to see, you know, some of the things, you know, older people like me complain about the music that being made now. A lot of it is not the fault of the, of the makers. It's the fault of the system that's not giving them the tools. If you're not being mm, educated mm. on... Uh, on a, if you know what the E note E is, but you don't, no one tells you what E sharp and E flat is. You're not going to make a, you're not going to make a song like the Quincy might make or Air from the Fire might make because your palette of what is music, sure, is much smaller, and, sure. I, and we're seeing that in, in the musicianship. And so this all, this whole thing is tied together, uh, and access to live music, access to music education, all these things eventually they come out in the kind of music we get made by young people. It's it's another. I don't. I may be way off in saying this, but I think in hip hop America, you you describe something called the permanent business. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like this is almost another strand of that now. Well, it's easy. It's easier to sell. It's you know, if you're if people are making records for less money, which you know you can yeah. make right. a rap record pretty cheaply. Yeah. Right. Then you don't have to pay as much money. You don't have to pay band members. For sure. You know, it, there's an economic component to all of this, absolutely. It's a big one, especially if you're not going to get a return on this. If you're an artist right now, you're like, why am I spending money? Why am I even learning to play music when I don't, I'm not guaranteed anything at the back end of doing this anyway? I could do this a whole other way, so that's it. And before you, before you even get into the economics of it, why should I spend 10 years learning how to play piano exactly. when I could, inside of a month, from scratch, make something conceivably professional on my computer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's, yeah, I'm not going to benefit. This is not going to benefit me in any way. And you talk about economics, but I'm not trying to change that. But that's actually the problem we're going to run into with with education at the college level. It's going to be what's the point in this? And it's, we're sure. watching it happen with music right now. Like, what's yeah. the point in learning this when I don't have to? There's no, there, there's no payoff for this. I I agree with you 100. But 
specifically in the case of music, this is what separates the artists from people who want to just be part of it. Yeah. You mean the hacks, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I know, uh, yeah, Nelson, I know you got to bounce. To send you out on a high note, man, I just want to say what you said a minute ago, I think really sums up a lot of what we're talking about. You were talking about Marvin. You said that's the music you dreamed of seeing. Yeah. Um, dreamed of seeing, I think, is just a beautiful, eloquent phrase that, you know, mm-hmm. really speaks to what we're talking about. So thank you for that. All right, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. All right, man, anytime. Thanks, Nelson. Oh, Isaac, 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 to answer your question. Uh, I did see Marvin Gaye, but I was uh-huh. too young to understand. It, they used to have these music, black music festivals here in Chicago on 43rd and Ashland. It used to be the mm. Anthem Theater. And every year, like, major black artists used to come through. And this is like the early and mid-70s. So I saw the Jackson 5. I saw Stevie Wonder. I saw Marvin Gaye. You know, I saw it, but I was, because I was so young... I didn't really know what the fuck I was seeing when I saw Marvin at the, you know, at this right. festival. You know, I remember so you, two things. So if you saw him in the 70s, so you saw him at his peak. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, yeah okay. I, saw, I saw him there. But once again, you got to understand, I'm like 11, 12 years old. Mm. And my whole focus mm. was on two things. Seeing the Jackson 5, because they were it. Mm-hmm. Right. They were, they, they were your age. So that yeah. was a whole different experience. So seeing them and getting... A black light poster, Stevie Wonder, from my room. <laughs> <laughs> the black light poster. The black wow. light poster, right. Wow. So. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that Marvin's style of music and his subject matter and his whole kind of, even just like sonically, the kind of vibe that it gives you, is probably a bit mature for an 11 or 12 year old to fully kind of embrace? Um, even as mature as I was at, at you know, I was, I'm much more, I was course, much more mature at 11 and 12 than I am now. So <laughs> I, w- I would say yes, but I-, I-, I say that to say that even though you know his music and you understand it just at that age, because the Jacksons and the Jackson 5 and Michael was so big, of course. Um, almost, you know, it was kind of like, like a supernova. Exactly. Exactly. Like, hey, Marvin Gaye. I love Marvin Gaye. Cool. Can we get to the Jackson 5? You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So that was, you know, that. Yeah, this, so that's kind of what it was. If the Jackson 5 weren't around at that time then maybe i think it would be different but for somebody at that age to have something that big that you connect with because it's a because it's your age like it's your genre Mm -hmm. like michael and jackie and t they were different because they were part of you because you were for us that was us Mm. so it's almost like you couldn't compete you know and 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 that's what made it hard to even remember as we talked about the memory of live shows it's hard to even remember what marvin's show was like when i did see him because I was like in a solar eclipse. You know, all of us here, you know, we, we have the advantage of the before, now, during, and what we're about to experience, you know, in the after, where we've seen shows and we have these comparisons that we can make. Um, but, you know, there is a generation that has never experienced live concerts. I mean, in fact, I was in a conversation recently with uh, a late 20-something and he had admitted that he had he really had never attended a concert. And thinking about the artists and their you know and their profit center, how they make music. I mean, what if the populace that has never experienced live concert performances? How does how can that impact music as a whole? Can you miss what you've never had, basically? Right. That's but, a good but, point. But even when I was but see, look, even even in our experience, 
you know people who are into music and you know people who are into other things, right? Then music isn't a big deal for them. They'll listen to what's on the radio or, or you know, what, what their girl gives them or whatever, but that's it. So those people... Yeah. 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, they weren't going to concerts anyway. But Arthur, let me ask you, did he give a reason why he's never been to a live show? Was there a reason behind that? Yeah, I had a feeling that someone had to take him to a concert. Like if someone came and said, hey, let's go see New Edition or let's go see Ashanti He may not be the right example, right? Well, you know, I mean, to your point, he might be the right example because there are always people... You know, I remember friends from school and even from college, you know, who didn't want to who didn't want to go to a concert. It, it just wasn't that big. It just wasn't that big of a deal to them. They felt that they had to be into music in order for them to go. Right. But that's timeless. Isn't the question right now what's changed? So those kind of people, nothing will have changed with that because it's timeless. The people who are into music. If their habits Ooh. change, that's the that to me is the interesting question. And it, maybe they're not now. Jahan, you just touched on something. Because of the state of contemporary music right now, where we really have to throw up quotation marks around music. You know what I'm saying? Because it is sound, but it's not instrumentally music anymore. Right. (laughs) Right, it is. But why? There there, there will be people like, you know what? Mm -hmm. What am I going to see? You know, what, why am I going to see something live, you know, when there won't be, you know, any real, real instruments, there, any richness to the music? There, there could be a rejection in that. I could see people responding and not going to live shows because of that. Or they go for different reasons. Like, I wonder if that would even be a question that occurs to them. Like, even if you listen to a lot of music, we've done a show previously where we were talking about Donald Glover's Mm -hmm. This Is America and Beyonce's Lemonade, etc. And all the video albums. And we discussed on there the idea that, I think Isaac put it best, sight is the new sound. Right. If people are no longer, or or if there's a reduced amount, significantly, substantially reduced amount of people who experience music in a non-musical way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between buying a record or listening to a song because you want to listen to that song, because you want to buy that record, going to the concert because you want to hear it again. You want to hear it in that personal experience that you guys described. There's a big difference between that and going somewhere because there's a different element, whether it's a social element of a festival and all the Instagrammable moments um, and the day out, the whole kind of day out, the whole weekend out, the wine tasting, as you said, scoop, all that kind of stuff. There's a difference between that or consuming music because you're looking at a visual or because of what you think that music represents because of somebody's social media personality these are all these are all ways that impact the consumption of music and i can't help but i just i can't see that not affecting how people consume live performances so i think that even if the same amount of people go to see a live show today as they would have 10 years ago Mm -hmm. I almost feel like maybe they're going for different reasons. What, I, what I've gotten from the younger people, you know, the nephews, the sons, the nieces, and all this, that, and the other, is that people who, artists who have built up their followings basically through visual situations where they'll drop a single in a YouTube, you know, single to go along it, and they, they, they've, they've built up this whole thing visually. They go to concerts and go to see live performers mm. to see what those artists do with those songs. 
I've heard them all say, I want to see what Chief Keef does with this song because, you know, uh -huh. the video was this. I want to see, you know, mm -hmm. what, you know, Megan Thee Stallion does with this because the video was this. You know, they go to see what they do to these particular songs that have blown up on whatever, you know, let's just keep saying YouTube, that have blown up visually, that have blown up on YouTube. Yeah. They want to see what they do with those songs in person. That's been the thing that keeps driving them. And so it's almost like, it's kind of like we, we were coming up and use music as a marketing tool to go see people live. Mm -hmm. You know, to a certain degree, it seems to me, and speaking to the younger generation, to what Nelson was saying about this is generational, the younger generation who, who's, who's going to see some of their contemporary artists right now is driven by what these artists are doing visually and them wanting to see what they do to these same songs face to face. That's what's driving them to see live performances. Is YouTube the new radio? Yes, yes, without question. I think I think YouTube is radio. Yeah, is. You can drop new. Yeah. At this point. And you can control it. But it's, it, I, th I think I hear yeah, you can drop new and you can drop it at any time. And there's no gatekeepers for you to have to go through. But it's also more about control. And that's the thing where we're living in this age now with a younger generation. It's more about controlling them. They want to just have control over what the fuck they listen to and how they listen to it and when they listen to it. As opposed to waiting for some program director, somebody to tell them what to do. It's about, I can control this shit. Click, I want to hear this. Click, I want to hear this. Click, I want to hear this. Yeah, but then the loss becomes, I mean, you get the recommended stuff on YouTube or wherever, you know, Spotify, wherever, you, you know, you get exactly. recommended based on what you're listening to. Exactly. And the algorithm mm -hmm. becomes the DJ. Yeah, it's an algorithm. Exactly. And so you're missing out on, you know, the spont spontaneity of being someplace and somebody saying something or... You know, this is a whole nother show, but, you know, with the loss of record stores, you miss out on somebody who actually personally knows you um, and can say, check this out. Yeah, um, so, yeah, sure. but that, that, yeah, YouTube's a new radio. And I think that that recommended thing is the new DJ, but it's, you know, there's a loss there. Yeah, but you, you're, you're missing the art of discovery is like slowly going away, you know, where, like you said, on the radio, like you might not be checking for something, but they play something that you wouldn't even check for them. Like, damn. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that existed, you know? And YouTube could do recommendations, but if you don't want to click onto it, you won't. So you're not going to, you know, unless you decide to discover something new, you won't discover it. The mm -hmm. beauty of discovery is sometimes just being introduced to something happen, you know, just by happenstance. Like, damn, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that. And, yeah. and that's being lost, you know, so. So if it, I mean, if it, if it looks like live music isn't as important, moving forward through generations then how does an artist shift to that kind of world does it happen organically where the generational artist the younger generation of the artist is the well, more easily adaptable they can be within this new within this new model well you guys already said they've already shifted you know what I'm saying? They've shifted to YouTube. They shift, they, they've, they've already made that shift. Right, but the artists really aren't making money off of YouTube. Yeah, right. So if they can never get back on stage again, you know, how do they, what do they do? You have to now, as an artist, because YouTube and Spotify and all these companies, they, play, they pay such a derisory rate, such a derisory royalty rate. We all know, and it's been documented plenty of times, music sales are not going to sustain an artist, particularly in an environment where live shows are no longer going to sustain or temporarily at least no longer going to sustain an artist i think a wise artist will work out how to maximize value in their product for a small group of people perhaps so you saw it with at its most extreme 
you saw it with Wu-Tang auctioning an album for mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. however much they did. What was that? A million or two million or something? Or whether it's you deciding to say, you know what, I'm going to sell this album with something else. So whether it's you're selling it with a video or whether you sell it with a clothing line or whether you sell it with something else, I think artists have to work out how do I package this into something else such that it's part of another Mm. product. I mean, I hate that. I hate that. I can't see another way of doing it at the moment. So you're going to see much more corporate involvement, even more so like with, with corporations outside of the music industry probably getting more involved. Yes and no. Like Bandcamp is a is an example of a company that is a bit more honourable when it mm-hmm. comes to this sort of stuff. They host a huge amount of independent artists. I understand that the artists get a greater share mm. and the artists are able to sort of curate a following, basically, directly. So is it like secular marketing situation where one thing helps out the other which helps out the other and it all becomes full circle is is that what we're saying yeah i mean i i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to describe it perhaps as i don't want to say easily but i wouldn't i wouldn't want to present it as if oh this is the way to do it this is a successful method i think yeah no Mm -hmm. i think that these are things you think that's i'm saying you think that's what's going to happen yeah i i think the artists will start to explore I don't know, there's there's some artists who, you know, they get their following and they say, right, I'm going to make a thousand copies of this and I'm going to sell each one for a hundred dollars. Or I'm going to make a hundred copies of this and sell each one for a thousand dollars. And I wonder if a kind of element of exclusivity for a certain type of demographic, you know, that diehard demographic that really cares about, Mm -hmm. you know, we've talked a lot about Prince on this show. And I know Arthur has talked outside of this about Prince and the remasters and the deluxe editions that should be coming, are coming, have come, haven't come out of the estate. I think one, you know, one of the conundrums that the estate has perhaps only just sort of realized is their market is not everybody. Their market is X many thousand of diehard people from Generation X right. who are seriously into him and will buy his stuff. Perhaps back in the day, you could hope for the best and think, yeah, I'll just find a whole bunch of people. I mean, you know, we even do it with the music snobs. You, you have to work out who your tribe is and hope that that tribe mm-hmm. judges you to be authentic enough that they're willing to invest in you, whether it's investing their attention or investing money. Here's where my mind is, and I have a question. It's like I'm thinking about someone, an artist like Rihanna, who has a lingerie line and a skincare line. Does she go and do live performances and use them as a sponsor to help market the skincare and you know and and lingerie line and does that also work in in the other way around that her going out and doing live shows helps promote the lingerie and skincare line you see what i'm saying it's like and i think she would do something like that because she can you know she's of such a huge sort of level that she could get any level of sponsorship for any product but I see what you're saying, that even though, she, even though she doesn't particularly need that opportunity, she set up a position where she can leverage one thing against the other. And that's, that's a very good position to be in, whether, whether she needs it or not. Something to note here is that Rihanna is a corporation. She's not a person, true. right? Like, <laughs> true, damn true, near. true. You know, true. She, she, she has, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that she has quite a few people working for her. If we're talking about a an artist who's starting out or, or, or a low-level artist in terms of fame and, and success, 
nine times out of 10, they're a one person show. They record it, they mix it sometimes, they produce it, they manufacture it, they promote it themselves. They don't have a social media manager. If they are trying to work out another opportunity, maybe they'll partner with somebody else, but I mean, it's, it's very close to my heart, This, but it's a huge amount of pressure on one person's shoulders who really shouldn't be doing this shit. Mm. They should be spending their time thinking about creating mm. mm-hmm. and developing as an artist. And if you spend half your day, you know, boxing up CDs or, or having to sit on Twitter to promote yourself, that's time that you're not spent learning your craft. That's time that you're not spent becoming who you should become. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that too has an impact on the development of music and, and where we are today musically. Yeah, I agree Truth. with that 100%. Truth, preach. You know, it, something that came up, you know, in the development of this show that, that I actually, I could actually see happening, I do agree with, would be that if if this climate and what we're talking about could force a return of the album experience and the album as the driver for sales, because the album, you know, for the most part is the thing that the artist can really control in terms of the creation of it and how it's put together. Arthur, break it down to me in a personal way. What do you mean by the album experience? Okay, something that is something that's recent that we're all familiar with that we all appreciate was Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. And that from start to finish, we would want to listen through it because they were constructed and sequenced in a way that had a narrative quality to it. I felt, I felt that as a listener. I felt that in the case of To Pimp a Butterfly, and I mean, there are other albums, but something that we can all, our listeners, us can all center on. You know, listening to Pimp a Butterfly, we got the feeling that this is what Kendrick wanted to say at this time, and this is how he wanted to say it. I think it's gonna be difficult in this day and age where, you know, you can do an album like, let's take Billie Eilish. You know, when she put out an album, uh-huh. you know, half, more than half of the songs that were on that album had already been released and blown up. It was just like, right, we're going to take these songs mm-hmm. that she's done over the last two years and package them together with some new stuff she's doing and call it an album and release it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it's, it's, it's a gonna, compilation, right? Right. right. It's basically. basically a compilation, but it's, a, it's considered an album because they decided to just package it and sell it as one. But basically, we're living in an age where anytime she got through with doing a single, her and Phineas are like, all right, let's put it out there. And they just put it out there, and it's like a new yeah. single drop, a new single drop. And we're living in an age when you don't have to go through a record company. You don't have to go through all those stages to get right. stuff out there. It's going to be difficult to get an artist to sit down like Kendrick did for two years and construct a narrative without releasing stuff as it's yeah. able to come out. And the fight against that is, yes, Kendrick was successful with that, but Billie Eilish was successful, super successful, what she did. And artists are always, for the most part, going to look at what is successful and what's going to work best for them. So if somebody... But isn't that... Go ahead. I mean, I can't falter for that. I mean, is the, that to me is the same way as... Oh, no, it's not a fault. It's genius. It's genius. It works. It, 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 what to I'm build saying, the it audience. It works perfectly for her, right? It NWA selling, you know, Dre selling tapes out of his trunk. Exactly. But the, yeah, but... Yeah, but, but they're selling singles. And you don't have, and they don't have to put any type of financial investment in selling it as you did with, you know, selling it out the truck of your car. It's like all you have to do is, hey, look, let's hit, make the single, shoot whatever type of video we want to do. We can shoot a video on the phone. 
edit this shit, right. put it on YouTube, we're good. That's all we have to do. And then all of a sudden, you got a million people clicking and viewing this thing. And then another week later, you put out another song and the same thing happens. It's going to be difficult for artists to think about doing stuff in an album format when the other side is available to them and there is success being found on the other side. It's, it's the concept album versus the compilation album. Exactly. There's no more concept exactly. album. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but I, I think with, with the compilation concepts, I think there's something about Spotify, like there's something about it being more lucrative to release singles than albums. And I, I mean, it's, it's foolish of me not to understand this, but, but I don't fully, but... I, I suppose it's something to do with the fact that singles come out or one track comes out, um, it gets playlisted and perhaps that's how that's how you really rack up numbers. You really rack up streaming listens, numbers, whatever. Maybe it's perceived that if they release a whole bunch of music at once, it's less likely that e- you won't be able to maximize on each of those things. I don't know, but there is something, and perhaps somebody can tell us on social media, but there is something about Spotify being more... Um, you'll, you'll earn more money by dropping nine tracks separately than you will by dropping one nine track album. But from a Spotify standpoint, or just from an album standpoint, there seems to be an interest when an album is done. Like, you know, Freddie Gibbs dropped the album. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my, you know, with Alchemist. Yeah, but and doesn't it, it depend on the artist, though? I know, that's what I'm saying. But that's what's interesting, right, is that there's still an interest there. It's like, you know, they could have put out a couple of singles, but the fact that Freddie and Alchemist got together, there seemed to be a buzz. Like, oh shit. Sure. Like, Burner Boy just put out something that, that, that pity. I mean, it did he just uh, executive produced. And it was a thing, like, oh my God, you know, Burner Boy got an album, you know, but Diddy produced uh-huh. it. And there uh-huh. seemed to be a buzz, there's still a buzz surrounding albums. And people are still, they may be more lucrative from the artist standpoint on Spotify, but from streaming services, there seems to still be a buzz about artists putting out albums, depending on the artist. Good point, John. But there right, still is right, a buzz. Right. And as long as there's a buzz, I think there may be an interest. It's just a matter of, to Isaac's point, What's going to work better for that artist? Is it going to be better for you to continually do it this way and, you know, put an album together as a compilation over a period of time because you release these singles? Or could that be like, hey, you know what? There's a project I want to work on. Like I said, if, if you're Freddie Gibbs, you're like, you know what? Me and Alchemist or me and Ninth Wonder, you know, or we want to get together and we want to work on a project, yeah. not just a single. It's better for us to do it this way because we want it to be done this way. Or if you're yeah, Burner a, Boy mm-hmm. and you have a chance to get, like, Burner Boy, you've been doing your thing. People know who you are. Your music has found a little niche. You're cool. And now all of a sudden, somebody like Diddy wants to work with you. You can't mm-hmm. just work with Diddy on one song. Yeah, it's a statement of intent. It's a basically, it's a proclamation. Because if you look at, and by the way, Pity, I think, is a great nickname for P. Diddy. I yeah, think that should be the new I was, I was stuck with name. P. Puffy and Pity Diddy. You know, I, like, I, don't, I, I don't know what to call him now. Dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the next, I think that's the next yeah. evolution is Pity. Um, but, but I, I do think it's it's a statement of intent in the sense that Taylor Taylor Swift just dropped the album what a month or two ago, and it was evidently it's a departure from everything that she's been doing, and it's a new sound. You drop a single, that's one thing, but to drop an album, that's mm-hmm. a statement of intent. That's a you know this is what I'm doing right now. So there's I think there's a seriousness. I feel like we're off topic, but I do I think that's that's I think that's what you guys are saying. I do want to get back to uh, our studio versus live comparison and 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 earlier before uh nelson left us i i brought up aretha franklin i brought her up because she's an artist who i mean classic obviously but she's an artist who 
of all the recorded material that I've heard, the albums that I still pull from are the, are her live albums, um, specifically Live at the Fillmore West and um, the Amazing Grace album, which recently was was finally released. The documentary of it was finally released at the video called Amazing Grace. Um, and you, you, you really have to watch that. It's it's Aretha Franklin uh, in church. Reverend James Cleveland. It's Reverend James <laughs> Cleveland. Uh, Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones are there literally worshiping at her feet. Uh, Bernard Purdy, her musical director, uh, was on drums. I mean, just an incredible performance. But the reason why for me is because just the the energy that she was able to and her and her musicians but the energy that was able to be conveyed through the performance captured me and made me really understand why Aretha is Aretha and in a much better way than I was able to get you know from her albums with the side exception of uh, Young Gifted and Black but I know that you know we all collectively may not be you know complete Aretha you know masters but we're familiar with both sides of it. I mean, do you have that same kind of feeling with with an artist like Aretha Franklin, you know, different than you would have what you've already talked about, you know, talking about Public Enemy? Because it's all about energy. I have a question real quick for you on this, Isaac. I mean, uh, Arthur. If she did Amazing Grace as a studio album as opposed to recording it live in the church... Do you think it would have come off the same? No. Okay. No, I really don't. I think I think the venue informed her delivery. The venue and just being there. The event. The event. The event. Right. Okay. 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 We're on the same. I, I, I was saying that to get on the same page as you. I was just wondering because right. it's such an amazing performance. Everything there, you feel it. Because it is a live performance, I was wondering if they say, all right, you know what, we're going to do the exact same thing, we're going to do it in studio, you know, with the same choir, you know, yeah. with the, with everything the same, but we're going to do it in studio, we're going to construct it in a way, we're going to do different takes, you know, we're, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to work this into a studio if it would have sounded the same in your mind, and you're saying no. Yeah, no, I don't think so, I don't okay. think so at all. I agree. I, I think there's two answers. I think it's a yes okay. and a no. Uh, whether you're looking at Amazing Grace, whether you're looking at Songs of Faith, whether you're looking at One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, The Fillmore, Aretha in Paris. Mm-hmm. Aretha's a terrible example for this question because she's so amazing and so gifted that mm. what you hear in the studio and what you hear live, mm-hmm. she's as at home in either setting. Mm-hmm. A lot of artists, you know, they just sound better in the studio because it's more controlled. They have more takes. They have more. They've got a better mic. They've, you know, they, their vocal chain is mixed really beautifully. Aretha didn't need any of that. You know, she's she's killing whether she's at home in, you know, on stage, on wax, is killing. And her performance, her studio performances, always had a live quality about them vocally. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was nothing restrained about it. A lot of the time when people think of going to see somebody live is because they want that artist to be unrestrained or unleashed, you know, almost sort of raw, you know, alive, live. But Aretha yeah. has that on wax. 
uh, on mm. CD, on MP3, whatever. It's that voice and the way she sings is so free and so relaxed, just so masterful that you get the same experience for me. So that's that's the no, it doesn't matter. The yes, it matters is everybody else. <laughs> it, and, it, and specifically in the example that you brought up, Amazing Grace, and I think it works equally with Songs of Faith mm. and One mm. Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, because they're, you know, they're church albums. She didn't, to me, to my ears, she didn't necessarily need that to feed her, to take a higher, you know. It's, it's, I mean, even when she performed Ness and Dorma, stepping in for Pavarotti at the very last minute at the Grammys, mm. I forget mm. what year that was, mm. but just killing, absolutely killing. And she's so controlled and chill and relaxed. So I don't, I don't know. I just feel like she's a one in a million. Yeah, she's the exception. So you got, you're she's just you're, one in a million artists who wherever she is, you're going to get gold, you know? But mainly you're talking from listening to you guys, you're talking from, you know, her performance, but as the person in the audience. And one thing we haven't brought in talking about this whole, you know, concert stage, whatever experience is the environment as far as low lights, you know, um, atmosphere basically we haven't talked about atmosphere because um, we spend a lot of time talking about festivals and festivals are outside that's that's a little different but mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. with enclosed spaces and controlled environments there's an atmospheric you know component there that we haven't really touched on but I think what I hear you guys saying uh, specifically you John is you know her professionalism and Aretha what she gave and to an extent what you received from her you know because of her talent her, her immense talent one-of-a-kind talent but isn't there isn't there a difference going back to what we talked about the moment and not to say you can't have a moment listening to an album by yourself you can you know what I'm saying you can remember the first time you heard so-and-so song we all Absolutely. have the, we all have Absolutely. those memories but isn't there a component of for lack of a better term of church you know what I'm saying of being in that atmosphere and getting hit by that you know by the Holy Ghost or whatever like we talked about a couple episodes ago isn't there a component that you really can't get from even if it's even if Aretha is still hitting the way she was hitting in con, you know on 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 uh, in the studio the way she is on stage? Isn't there a little bit extra something of the atmospheric uh, component? Isn't there something else there? There is, there is, and sometimes that can be a benefit, and then sometimes it can be a detriment musically. Um, it just depends on your taste and what you what you like. Uh, it's funny that you said church because if you look at uh, Aretha live at Fillmore West what is that 1971 I think mm-hmm. opening track there is Respect now it sounds totally different to the studio version if you've heard that that is so churchy it's got that double time feel to it it's everybody on their feet vibe to it it's the opening track there is an I know what you mean there is an electricity to it there's a there's a churchiness to it musically and a churchiness to it atmosphere wise it's um yeah it's it's brilliant but musically i probably prefer the studio version yeah because i think you know just and i'll say this and, and, and let you guys interject but i think the emotional aspect because even though music can take us away from wherever we are when we hear it there is the fact that when you are um listening to something by yourself or you know away from the the the, the stage you can be distracted by other things even if you don't even realize it you know you're not you know, you're in. You're not in a musical environment. You're in your living room, in your car, just walking down the street. You're on the train, whatever. Whereas when you go to a concert, you're only there for one reason. 
you know your focus is right there unless less to your earlier point you know you're at a festival and you're paying attention like nelson said you know somebody's hair color but if you're at a concert concert you know specifically not a festival just a concert you're you're zeroed in on that stage when though when that emotion comes from that stage you can't duck or dive you know what i'm saying it's like it just hits you you know and it's like there's a i, I would imagine i would imagine that there's just an inescapable quality of um emotional aspect of it you know that even though like you said jay even though the studio may be even superior you know in sound I would imagine on an emotional level that you, you know, you can't get away from it um, in the studio or in this on at the concert. But let me ask you this. You said standing in the audience, feeding off the stage, etc. A lot of these live albums, particularly from the 70s era, you do hear a lot of the audience. It can be quite enchanting and charming to hear them appreciate something and it it almost kind of like wakes you up to say, "Okay, hang on, this is a this is a good part because other people think it's a good part." Is that should that be relevant though? Should, no, no, should I'm not you, talking about the should other Should you people. enjoy something? Because, right, but that's all part of the electricity that you're talking about when you hear a live album. We talked about electricity a minute ago. I was talking about more, this at this point, I was talking about more about the emotional quality you yourself feel about being in that audience. Not necessarily about feeding off of other people. You feeding but off the music. But it's all part and parcel yeah. of the same thing, though, isn't it? Right, but we were Do breaking it think... down. We were breaking it down into different components, is what I'm saying. So I, I get... You, but but if you if you go to a concert and you're on your own and, and you know if you're you're the only person in the audience listening, are you going to have a different experience than if you're with lots of other people listening? Mm. If you're talking about the live experience and the electricity of all of that around that, whether it's the band, whether it's the acoustics and the dynamics, whether it's the low lights, whether it's the feeling in the whole room, part of that feeling in the whole room, I think, is going to come from the audience. If you take the audience out of that. How does that impact your experience? I had an experience with Amazing Grace, and not the standard issue Amazing Grace, but but the expanded edition um, and her rendition of How I Got Over, mm. where when I heard it, I was driving and I had to pull over, back the song up and just listen to the whole thing again, mm-hmm. where it was that I, well, I caught something. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the way that Reverend James Cleveland... You had to eliminate your distractions. You eliminated the distraction and focused on the music. Well, yeah, because I had to. The music forced me to. It was that, it was that punch. And it was the way that, 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 that James, Reverend James Cleveland, he started off on, on piano. And then he began with, melodically, he began a count that then triggered yeah, Bernard about Purdy about to pick that up on drums that then... Aretha picked up and you can hear her starting to clap yeah. because she's counting off the choir and then it is it's like a it's like a fucking freight train it's killing. It's that killing. just comes at you it's killing. It's absolutely <laughs> and, killing. I, it is. and I had never had that ex- I, I'm, 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 that is the first time I'd ever had an experience like that in all of the music that I've listened to and all of those special moments I remember mm-hmm. where I was when mm-hmm. and I got that full power of Aretha Franklin and what she was doing and I do believe that it didn't have anything to do with where I was but had everything to do with where she was when she made that recording Uh, yeah to this day just thinking about it I'm blown Mm -hmm. away but there's also something we got to go back to we as human beings still connect off of other human beings so Jahan I think part of the answer to your what you're asking I think is I think there's once in your way two answers I think you can experience one way like Arthur did, you know, and it could be a solo singular experience just by him alone. But I think 
he would have had a not necessarily a similar experience, but a still gratifying experience if you see another human being feeling the way that you feel in that moment. It's yeah, a shared moment. It. And, yeah. and and, and, and yeah. that and because it's a shared moment, it can make that moment even more powerful to right. you. Right. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Right, because it's like, right. oh shit, I'm not the only one going through this shit. Mm. One thing we haven't we we haven't talked about the visual component of this. And when you talk about going to see somebody live, mm. looking at a Frank Sinatra, it was the the visual component of you know the tux, the you know the drink, the talking, you know the conversations with the audience, blah blah blah. Then there's also if you go to see say Janet Jackson or Beyonce or somebody the choreography we have not talked about choreography mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know what i'm saying right, we haven't talked right. about the visual spectacle of live music especially uh-huh. when you're talking about uh mainstream you know uh bigger acts who can afford to put on these experiences we haven't talked about that and that's something that it for certain people that's always going to outweigh you know listening to it on 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 the radio or, or their yeah. ipod or the their iphone or whatever the music well not necessarily yeah. that jay i think that I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that completely. I think it depends upon the artist because I think you can take someone like Michael and say the choreography and his dance was a part of that music. You know what I'm saying? It was like, yeah, it was theatrical, but there were there wasn't a oh, well, it this didn't add is, a sound to it. It didn't add a, it didn't add a musical component. It, it didn't add a sound to it. It didn't add a sound to it. But for me, growing up in that era, there was no separation between Michael's music and Michael's dance. Absolutely not. Of course, but that's you as a listener. I mean, I'm not saying I was any different for the record. That's us as audience members where we wanted those theatrics rather than seeing Mike on a stool with a microphone Mm -hmm. with his beautiful voice singing Lady in My Life or Off the Wall or Can't Help It. No way he could do Billie Jean and not Moonwalk. Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, honestly, who now, you know, now with a bit of maturity behind us, who wouldn't want to see Mike just with some count on the piano with Greg Fillingains on the piano. Yeah, that's yeah, that's I've been killing. But I get what you mean. That's a part of it. But just to maintain, I think that that's something again we haven't talked about over this over during the show and I think that it's key that we bring that in at least cuz I know somebody's going to say it on Twitter, the visual aspect of of the stage cannot be, you know, obviously cannot be duplicated on the uh on the on the in the studio. But that's what I was hitting at early when I said the kids are going to go see how they perform these songs live after watching them on YouTube. That's what I was hitting at. Is the fact they want to see, all right, this is what it looks like. This is what your video looks like on YouTube. I want to see you perform it, how you perform this visually. I just didn't use the word visually, but that's exactly what I was hitting right. to Isaac and what they're wanting to see. Like, if you take the baby and, you know, they want to see the baby if he's going to bop the same mm. way he does yeah. in the video. If he's going to have, you know, if he's going to have, you know, the, 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 the dance crew from L.A. there, if he's going to have the girl, you know, twerking upside down, if he's going to have the exact same thing, they're going to want to go see Megan to see if Megan does the exact same thing, you know, performing her songs. You know, if she's going to walk mm-hmm. the same way, mm-hmm. had the same mm-hmm. car, mm-hmm. had the same girl's background. So when I was saying that the young cats are like, hey, I want to see if how this right. looks live. Yeah, and this... That's what I was talking about, Isaac. The visual that they they said that seems to be a thing. With right. Them this goes all the way back. This goes this goes all the way back to the early Motown shows. You know, they worked very sure. hard on the presentation sure. of what artists look like mm-hmm. on stage, how they did yes. certain things. So this, you can't. You know, it's it's very hard to divorce those visual cues 
from how you know how we later perceive the music i think that if we could dive into people's minds once they see an artist even you know let's take it you know let's be honest let's take it from not just the stage even if you see an artist on television on instagram wherever doing some type of performance that song that impacts how you how you hear that song later i think for a lot of people not everyone but i think for a lot of people the visual and the presentation and god forbid you know i hate to use this word in this context but the branding of those people of these artists impacts you know how you how you hear their music um so yeah i just think like i said i just feel like we need to say that before we ended the show and never never really jumped into that let me ask a rapid fire question real real quick excluding jazz classical and probably country music do you think we'll ever hear live albums Again. I was just about to ask that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I don't know if it would translate well. Right. I'm, now, so, I had, yeah. particularly in hip-hop, now, I, right. I've seen, I saw Kendrick support to Pimp a Butterfly, and I saw Outkast support Equimini. And in both cases, I thought that those would be brilliant live albums mm-hmm. because what they intended on record was expressed very well in the arrangements live. But I watched a Travis Scott performance yesterday at, at, I forget the festival, I think it was in Austin, Austin, Texas, South by Southwest. I don't know if that would translate well as a live album. Not that, not that they can't do it or that it's not. I, I'd be interested in hearing from, from the audience via Twitter. It's like, you know, if you're interested in, like, who... My, my, answer, my answer would be no. I don't think you're going to hear that. I think what you're going to hear is more like the Erica Badu thing that Jay mentioned earlier. I think you'll see more of that. Um, but I don't think, I don't think, yeah, outside mm-hmm. of those genres you mentioned, Scoop, no. Exactly. Yes, yeah, so I, I'm, 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 I don't think it's, I think it's dead. Arthur, wrap it up, Arthur. I think you're both right. I don't, I don't think it's gonna, I don't think it's gonna happen that way anymore. As more artists get creative with the online model, you know, and evidence of that has already started. You know, we may see packages like this where there's, where there's some live, where there's some live audio component and audio only. Maybe the, maybe the live album will reinvent itself in the same way that I think the live performance is going to have to reinvent itself in this climate. This is a full lid on the Music Snobs podcast. We want to thank our special guest snob, once again, Nelson George, for taking the time to join us. Uh, find and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Total Music Snobs. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Please rate the show, leave a review. It really does help with uh, discovery of the show. You can follow us on Spotify. We are available everywhere that find RSS feeds are consumed. See you next show. <laughs>